Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a pediatrician and I am beyond excited to be here today with Dr. Perry Class. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Class is Professor of Journalism and Pediatrics at the New York University and co-director of the NYU Florence. She attended Harvard Medical School and completed her residency in pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Boston. She writes the weekly column, The Checkup, for the New York Times Science section. She has written extensively about medicine, children, literacy, and knitting. I do not overlap with you on knitting. Her new book, A Good Time to Be Born, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future, which is right behind you, right there, is an account of how victories over infant and child mortality have changed the world. And it is amazing. It is so good. I loved it so much. I didn't even want it to end. So thank you. Um, she began writing about medicine and about medical training when she was a medical student, a not entirely benign procedure, four years as a medical student, which I told you I carried around with me on my residency. I am four years younger than you, and it was perfect, very helpful for me. And also baby doctor, a pediatrician's training. Her medical journalism has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the New England Journal of Medicine and Harvard Medicine. She also co-wrote with Eileen Costello, MD, Quirky Kids, Understand and supporting your child with developmental differences, which will come out in a new edition from the American Academy of Pediatrics in early 2021. And that also was one of my favorite books and ones I referred many parents to, and it's so, so valuable. So I'm really excited that a new edition is coming out. Dr. Class is the National Medical Director of Reach Out and Read, a national program which promotes early literacy through pediatric primary care with guidance about reading aloud for parents and children's books provided at routine well visits. She ran the National Center from its inception through 2006, during which time the program grew from a single site to a national program with thousands of sites serving millions of children. The program now reaches 4.8 million children a year, 80% of whom are growing up in poverty. I mean, this is an unbelievable program and another reason I'm such a big fan of yours. I have to say my grandchildren are on their way and I did not make up beds for them, but I did go to the library and get a pile of books. What a perfect grandmother. <laughs> there you go. Through her work with Reach Out and Read, Dr. Class has been able to integrate her commitment to the health care of young children with her love of the written word. She has received numerous awards for her work as a pediatrician and educator, including the 2007 American Academy of Pediatrics Education Award, which recognizes her educational contributions that have had a broad and positive impact on the health and well-being of children, the 2006 Women's National Book Association Award, and the 2011 Alvarez Award from the American Medical Writers Association. In 2006, the American Academy of Pediatrics honored her with the Arnold P. Gold Foundation Humanism and Medicine Award, citing the impact that she has made through her writing, service as an educator, and leadership in promoting early literacy through Reach Out and Read. And you can reach Dr. Class at Perry, P-E-R-R-I dot K 
K-L-A-S-S at nyu.edu, which is how I found you. And thank you so much for saying yes to me. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the re for being a devoted reader. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it is incredible honor for me. So let's start with your book. I really, I think that the book is amazing at this time to give us perspective on how far we've come. So I would love to talk just a little bit about, a little bit about the book about the, the decreasing infant mortality, which has changed pediatrics so tremendously. I think that's true. And I was thinking about it as a parent. I was thinking about it as a pediatrician. And to be honest, since you've brought up grandchildren, I was thinking about it as a granddaughter. Because as I was thinking about how things had changed, I was thinking about 100 years ago when my grandmothers, both of them in Brooklyn, were having their children, my parents, in the 1920s. And when my grandmothers were having their children in Brooklyn, if you went around the table, pretty much everybody would have lost a child, lost a sibling, lost a good friend. And in fact, when you know we think about our grandparents' generation, most of us know where those those holes were in the family, right? You know, you know that somebody lost a baby, you know that there was a child who died of diphtheria, you know that there was a child who died of pneumonia. And it I'm not going to say it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, because it's always been better to be rich than poor in terms of health and nutrition and medical care, but the medical care couldn't do much. Mm -hmm. It affected everybody at every level of society. And if you were asking my grandmother if she were here, this is probably how she'd say it. You know, the Rockefeller Institute was founded by the richest man in history, John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in history. He founded it partially in memory of his grandson, his little grandson, whom he loved, who died of scarlet fever, now a completely treatable disease, um, in the very, very early years of the 20th century. My grandmother would probably have said to you, even if you're John D. Rockefeller, mm -hmm there's nothing you can do about so many of the, the dangers. So that was, that was my grandmother um, in the 1920s, thinking about losing children. When I trained in pediatrics and when you trained in pediatrics, um, I was in the 1980s in Boston, you were in New York, children were not supposed to die. It happened, it was tragic, there were accidents, there were terrible diseases, but we did not go into pediatrics thinking, of course, one out of every 10 children, two out of every 10 children, because, you know, we didn't, infant mortality alone, that is to say children who died by their first birthday in the first year of life was still over one out of every 10. And even for the ones, the nine out of 10 who made it to their first birthday, there was still polio, there was still diphtheria, there were no antibiotics. So pneumonia was fatal, skin infections. There were so many dangers. And of course, those parents, they loved their children just the way we do. And so I was thinking about it as a parent, mm -hmm. what it's like to try to make your decisions in that setting. But I was also honestly thinking about it as a pediatrician, because as you know, we go into this field partly because our, our goal in pediatrics is to have our patients graduate from us, right? Our goal is to get them all to the point where they go on and 
have doctors who practice adult medicine. And of course, in adult medicine, you have to think about um, the ends of people's lives. But in pediatrics, it does not come naturally to us, don't you think? No. It feels completely unnatural and so tragic. And I think that what I got out of the book is that parents then took it for granted that it would happen. Yeah. That they children won't necessarily survive. And that's the difference. It's not like children never die now, but it's thank God so much rarer that our expectations have shifted completely. Yes. And and that's right. I mean, you would never nowadays think to yourself, okay, I'm going to have um uh, a lot of children because probably one or two of them won't make it. Um, and that was never an easy thing to think about or an easy thing to confront, but it was such a common experience. And it had to change, it had to change your anxieties, your expectations, your understanding of the world. And one of the things that I wanted to write about in the book, because I think you know, if you ask me as a, as a mom, as a pediatrician, I think this is probably about the greatest thing that humans have done, that we've actually changed the world in so many ways that barring tragedies, barring terrible accidents, parents, at least in many countries and in many, and it's more and more places, can now look at our children and think, I love you and I expect you to live to grow up. I think we can keep you safe. That's something which all through history, go back as many centuries as you want, parents could not think and could not feel. And I think it's worth celebrating. We have figured out, and, and the other thing I wanna say about it is it wasn't one single mission. It wasn't, like you look at polio, you post-war polio, there's a decision made, we're going after polio, we're gonna find a vaccine and you mobilize parents through the March of Dimes and you have the president who's FDR, who's you know campaigning for that and is actually himself a, a, a polio victim and he's interested in the subject and you have celebrities getting on board to raise money and you have researchers, okay, that's a campaign and they win. They defeat polio, but this is made up of so many different things. It's scientists in the laboratory. It's public health nurses on the Lower East Side going door to door in the tenements. It's parents who stand up and say, we need higher standards. It's milk dispensaries that are Nathan Strauss founds all over New York. That it's getting clean milk, it's educating parents, it's parents' advocacy, it's science, it's medicine, and we, it comes together in these incredible improvements, these dropping numbers before the 20th century as well, in the 19th, and even before that in, in some cases, because you get small box vaccination at the, at the end of the 18th century, which makes a big difference. But it really falls across the 20th century so that by the time you and I train, we're not talking about one in every 10 children right. we're down below one in every you know, hundred children who won't make it to that first birthday. It's still, there are still too many and it's still tragic, but in terms of the experience of parenthood, it's changed so fundamentally and the experience of pediatrics. Right, now when you talk about the decrease in mortality, it's more than one thing. I mean, we just mentioned polio, we have vaccines, but the decrease in mortality is not just due to vaccines. 
so also due to tremendous changes in hygiene and so providing safe supplies of, of milk for babies, for example, because you go through that in your book and anybody who wants to, you know, can read it. It's amazing. I just don't want people to think that we're saying because of vaccines, we have dramatically, dramatically changed the infant mortality. It is a combination, right? So, I mean, it would be true to say that vaccines do dramatically change mm -hmm. infant and child mortality, but you're absolutely right. They're not the last step. And so I talk in the book about public health and about the people who um, right around the end of the 19th century is when people begin counting infant mortality the way we do today, the way you and I learned to do it, which is out of every thousand live births. How many out of every thousand live births don't make it to the first birthday? And in a way, the amazing thing is that up until the end of the century, people weren't really counting. People were, it was just such an accepted thing, especially mm -hmm. the newborns and young babies often didn't make it. And so by the end of the 20th century, by the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th, you have all of these organizations being formed in one country after another, including in the US, that are sort of the Society for the Prevention of Infant Mortality. But you're absolutely right. They don't have vaccines. They don't have antibiotics. They don't have any of the things that you and I have now in pediatrics and modern medicine. In fact, many of their cures, to be honest with you, are worse than the disease. But they start out with sanitation, mm -hmm. public health, parent education. They do have the ability to pasteurize milk. They have the ability to encourage breastfeeding. And pretty much all through human history, if you were gonna do one thing to bring down infant and child mortality, you would encourage breastfeeding because the alternatives up until the end of the 19th century, there's, there's no way to pasteurize the milk. There's no way to guarantee that the water is clean. <clears throat> And there isn't even a very good understanding of the role that microbes play, not just for parents, but for, for many doctors and for many public health people. So, so you don't have, as everything you're gonna have later on, you do have the smallpox vaccine, which matters a lot, um, but you have public health, hygiene, sanitation, parent education, parent advocacy. And then as you go into the 20th century, you start to have First, some of the vaccines and the anti-serum developments that happen like with diphtheria, and then you start to have vaccines. And then, also, or around the same time, you start to have antibiotics. And those, those matter a lot. And then later on in the century, you start to think about those newborns who are so vulnerable, who were dying at right. some point. And you start to think about what can you do in the delivery room? What can you do during pregnancy to help the mother have the healthy baby? What can you do in the first month of life? Because as you know, nowadays, when we do talk about the infant mortality that we still face, it's almost all in that first month of life, mm -hmm. most all related to prematurity, mm -hmm. to genital um, problems, to complications of pregnancy. So the baby who makes it out of that first month or out of that first year, nowadays we don't lose a lot of one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, right? I'm writing about a time when weaning was so dangerous, right? That people thought teething was fatal. Why did they think teething was fatal? Because we all know that teething and weaning often coincide because right. we get chewed on. 
and it and the child's got teeth and the child's ready to handle food teething wasn't fatal but not drinking breast milk was often fatal it's so interesting because i'm thinking now we're in a different position we're pushing breastfeeding very hard to the extent that sometimes it would be better not to in certain families. And I think then it made the difference between life and death. And now we do have good formulas that are safe. I'm not making a statement against breastfeeding. That would be forbidden as a pediatrician. <laughs> but the point that I'm making is that we are in a different position. And this is a great segue to where are we now? We're in a different spot. We, we have complete, I think, first of all, we're victims of our own success, right? Um, we have in some ways we are because mm -hmm. one of the questions I asked in this book, you know, I'm and here I am in this interesting position of publishing a book called A Good Time to Be Born that comes mm -hmm. out in the middle of a pandemic. I know. I may have to rename our talk. It's confusing. But <laughs> people think of as an anxious time. But right. what I want to say about that is um we are in a certain sense, I think victims of our own success in a couple of different ways. Mm -hmm. First of all, I would ask you, do you think you're more anxious or less anxious than your grandmother? Oh my God, so much more anxious. <laughs> so why are you so much more anxious? She had polio to worry about. She had diphtheria to worry about. She probably didn't have a safe playground accessible with you know um, stuff that was put on the ground in case you fell down and bumped yourself. <clears throat> She didn't even have childproof caps on her medicine bottles. Why do you think you're more anxious than your grandmother? Because I think the pressure is all on us now. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think we have created what I call in the book a promise of safety. Mm -hmm. And it's real. Your children are much, much safer than your grandmother's children. It's real. You've actually got more security. But the flip side of that is that we've said to you, and I say it too, and I believe all of these things. I say to you, okay, the car trip home from the hospital with a new baby, baby needs to be in the correct rear-facing infant car seat installed properly. Okay, when you get that baby home, let me tell you about safe sleep. I believe in all of these things. These are, these are advances in many cases um, around safety, which owe their existence to parent vigilance a parent who tragically lost a child and decides to become an advocate and make sure that the rules are changed and the advice is changed. But if I am telling you every step of the way, we know this is how you keep your baby safe. We know this is how you keep your toddler safe. There's also a sense of responsibility. You do it right and the child will be safe. What's the flip side of that? And I think we've placed collectively a tremendous weight of responsibility and anxiety on parents. I'm sure none of us would trade it for the other odds. I'm sure nobody would say, I don't wanna be anxious and it's okay with me to take the infant mortality odds that my grandmother faced. But I think that the weight, the sense of responsibility, the sense that every decision you make mm -hmm. is highly fraught has, has really put a, been a, uh, a load for parents to carry. And I would also say to you as a pediatrician, you probably have no way to say to yourself, scarlet fever is really bad this year. Um, you know, that child didn't make it, but what can you do? Scarlet fever is really bad this year. We, we are holding ourselves to uh, a standard of almost absolute safety, which I believe in. I want all my patients to be fine. I'm right. already 
everybody off. I want everyone's children to grow up, but I think we have to understand that we're also carrying a certain anxiety with that. And I think it's even more than that. I think it's also that medicine has changed in the sense that it used to be, you know, you talk about Dr. Spock in the book. Dr. Spock was, you know, the, almost like a Bible, you know, we would say Lahav deal, you know, that we don't compare the Spock to the Bible, but whatever. Um, I know my parents turned to it um, for advice and we would say what Dr. Spock says, go and you know, we go with, and now it's more like the expectation that you're going to partner with your physician or maybe even you're gonna go on Dr. Google and figure it out yourself. So I think there's also a lot of pressure to take on the responsibility of getting that information or making yes. the decision yourself. And that is, I mean, if you didn't go to medical school, even if you did, by the way, even if you go to medical school and you're a doctor and it's your child, you should not try you to- You should be not be making those decisions. I mean, I, I, I had a child um, during medical school and when I chose a pediatrician for him, I actually chose, a, pediatrician who had been one of my teachers who, um, and I sort of wanted someone who could say to me, when I was panicking about something, I wanted someone who could say to me, well, I suppose that could happen, but I've been in practice for right. years. Uh, you know, I needed somebody who I would listen to. And I think that that's also something that, you know, when you say listening to Dr. Spock, I think that my grandmother would have done what the doctor told. My mother regarded the doctor's mm -hmm. work as absolute law. And all I'm saying about that is I think there was a certain comfort in it. Um, I'm doing the right thing because I'm doing what Dr. Spock said. I'm doing the right thing because I'm doing what my doctor told me. And you shifted some of the responsibility onto the shoulders of somebody whose job was to bear that responsibility and to give you the right advice. No, that's really, really true. Um, and also I think that right now we're in the middle of COVID and we're gonna get to COVID right now because that was my goal was to get to COVID. That was a very, very awkward segue, but anyway. Um, another thing about COVID that it's taught us is that we had an illusion of control and an illusion of knowing everything and yet we don't. Now, in the setting of children, on the, for the most part they do fine, but I did see a lot of anxiety over the inflammatory syndrome, sure. which is rare, but it does happen. So let's move on to COVID because I think we need to start talking about the vaccine for children. Um, we're not there yet. We have an emergency use authorization for adults only and you know possibly older teens. But you wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm going to let you talk about it. Um, so what I was interested in is the question of how do you talk about, let me just go back into history for a second to polio. When the polio vaccine came, it was the vaccine that addressed every parent's worst nightmare. Because, you know, when my parents were growing up in Brooklyn, um, there was a polio epidemic almost every summer. Kids got sick, kids died, kids ended up paralyzed. There were empty seats in the classroom. Parents had to decide about, you know, group gatherings. It would sound a little bit familiar, but with the um, terrifying idea that the disease was much more severe in children and most of the people who died were children. So when the polio, when you talk about the polio vaccine, people will sort of say, you know, my parents pushed me to be mm -hmm. in 
study. My parents, you know, couldn't run fast enough or even, and I've heard many people say this, um, I got polio, I was in the last group, right? right. I, one year later and I would have been vaccinated. So that's, there you had a vaccine that was actually addressing something that loomed in parents' imagination as, as, as a terror, as a monster. But in thinking about COVID, because of everything you say, because it is not most severe in the children, because we've got a lot of dilemmas around the children, but it's not that same terror. I mean, you feel a different terror about grandma getting COVID than you do about the grandchild. And in fact, often what we're worried about with the children is the question of whether they might spread infection to older adults or to adults who are most vulnerable. So I wanted to think about how you might talk about that vaccine, which is not protect your child against the monster that you fear is coming to, <clears throat> coming to destroy your beloved child, but and that's why I wanted to think about measles. Um, and in fact, the article that you're talking about begins with the sentence, um, imagine a highly contagious virus circulating in the community. Many infected children have fever and some general misery, but recover without incident. Rarely devastating complications occur, leading to hospitalization, severe illness, and occasional deaths. Susceptible adults fare worse with higher rates of poor outcomes. Would you want your child vaccinated against this disease? You guessed we were talking about measles, right? Because measles was a vaccine, which when it appeared, um, it had to be introduced to a population which really wasn't nearly as afraid of measles as people were, for example, of polio, as people were of diphtheria, and rightly, polio was a scarier disease. It was a rarer disease, but it was a scarier disease. And with measles, the public health authorities, the doctors were trying to explain why you should be vaccinated against a disease which most children got and were able to recover from. It's a miserable disease. The children are miserable while they have it, but it's not dangerous to the majority of the children who get sick, as COVID seems not to be. Although obviously, well, I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just um, add my a little bit to that in that I don't think that measles for children um, <laughs> is actually quite as benign as COVID for children seems to be, although we don't know yet. Right, we don't know the long term, and we are already starting to see more long term adverse yep. effects in children from COVID. So, I think one of the problems with COVID is we don't have the historical viewpoint. Um, also, I think it has to be put in context of the high infant mortality at the time or the expectation that you know children were going to get other diseases and, and die of them at higher rates. I think our expectations now from what measles can do is it's not acceptable. Of course. You no. Know, so I don't want it to be confusing. There's easy, you know, this was the point of the anti-vaxxers. It's, it's called argumentum Brady Bunchicum, you know, yeah. where the Brady Bunch had the measles and they were so mild and they said, this is a great disease, isn't this fun? Um, so we just don't want it to be left, you know, un, unaddressed that the measles is so benign. You know, we know that it can, we know now more about it, that it can impair long-term immune function, um, SSPE, which, you know, is, actually not as rare as we thought, and then as measles pneumonia The right. thing about measles is that measles is the most catching virus we mm. know, the most infectious virus we know. Measles is the one where if somebody was on the bus or in the room a little while ago, mm. and you've been 
everybody gets there. Measles is the one where if one kid goes to a theme park, you can get 300 cases. It's really, really catching. More than so, COVID. More than COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, measles and chickenpox are both up there as just, you know, they just fly. And so one of the things that means is that pretty much everybody got measles back before there was a vaccine. And this was a new challenge in terms of explaining vaccination. You're absolutely right. The the thing about a disease that everybody gets, which has certain complications in even a small percent, is you multiply that small percent times millions and millions of cases because everybody gets it. And you see plenty of people with complications. You see children who get measles encephalitis at the time they have measles. This happens to Roald Dahl's daughter. Mm-hmm. When she's little, she's fine. And then she has measles. And then she dies very suddenly. Um, it, you also get people who, as you say, get SSPE and get a irreversible, slowly evolving, devastating um, brain problem years after they have measles. We think it's immunosuppressive. That is to say, we think that a lot of children after they have measles are still not really, their immune systems really aren't working. That's probably one reason there used to be so many deaths from bacterial pneumonia after measles. But you can also get a direct effect on the lungs from, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible disease. And it's also a miserable disease. That is to say, I remember as a resident, and I had not seen measles, we hadn't had so many of the outbreaks that we've had since then, unfortunately. I remember looking at a kid with a weird rash and wondering as a resident, is it possible, could this be measles? And so what we always used to do is go get the oldest attendant in the emergency room and bring that person in and say, could this be measles? And that person would always say, something like, you know, your grandma could diagnose measles from across the room, which of course she could. But I remember bringing in an attending to look at a rash. And I remember him saying to me, first of all, the child's not miserable enough. Um, And then the rash was wrong and it wasn't measles. But I, I remember being told, and since then have learned it's true, that the children with measles are really uncomfortable, unhappy, miserable. They don't look like those kids on the Brady Bunch. Because right, it actually invades the the central nervous system. It invades. We think there. I think that people think there's always a component of irritation of the central nervous system. It does invade, and of course, in some kids, it stays and does damage. So, but as I say, when it came time to roll out the campaign, in terms of talking to doctors, talking to parents. Um, it was a new set of conversations different from the polio conversations because you were talking to many people, pretty much everybody had had measles and their brothers and sisters had had measles and their cousins Mm -hmm. had measles. And you were trying to um, explain these complications that they can happen. And you were also trying to explain that if we could vaccinate everybody, we could protect the most vulnerable. So right now with, um, with COVID, we're worried about protecting our grandparents. We're worried about protecting um, people who have underlying conditions. We're also worried about the children because as you say, there's a lot we don't know and we don't think that it's necessarily 
we don't think we've learned all the damage that this virus can do, but we're especially interested in protecting some vulnerable populations. Well, so with measles, that would be stay infants under a year. We vaccinate against measles at a year of age, but measles used to be devastating in infants and also in one-year-olds, in the youngest children. Measles was really bad in pregnant women. Um, so there, there were populations that you could protect. Nowadays, this wouldn't have been as true um, <clears throat> 100, this wouldn't have been true 100 years ago, but nowadays we've got populations of kids who've had chemotherapy. We've got populations of kids and adults whose immune systems are depressed because they've had chemotherapy or they're taking some of the drugs that we use nowadays to treat all kinds of conditions. They're the people for whom the odds, are, you know, the risks of measles are much, much higher. And again, as I say, it's so extremely infectious. So what, what I wanted to talk about in the article is how did, what are the sort of successes and failures of that early rollout of the first version of the measles vaccine and then of the MMR vaccine? What are the lessons we learned from the fact that we have not yet eradicated measles we came so close and then we've lost ground since then in this country and people are still dying of measles around the world. Measles like polio, like smallpox, should be a virus we can eradicate. It right. doesn't have any animal hosts, right? It's only in humans. If somebody ha had the last case of measles, like if somebody had at some point did have the last human case of smallpox, that would be the last case of measles. It doesn't have anywhere to hide. We would have done what we did with smallpox. We would have taken a virus which has been making people sick, making people miserable, sometimes leaving terrible damage in its wake and beaten it. See, but the thing is that at the end of the day, every parent is going to make the decision, what is the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of the disease? And it's fascinating to me that you're setting us back in the era when measles was not considered dangerous, was considered a rite of passage, and you'll come out with a new vaccine. Now, to the typical parent, they'd be like, why would I take the risk of a new vaccine over good old measles that I know about? And my experience has been, it hasn't been that bad, which, by the way, repeated itself in the more recent measles outbreak for some people? Well, one of the things that was done when the first measles eradication campaigns were rolled out mm -hmm. was to publicize some of the children who had had worse outcomes, mm -hmm. children who'd been left with um, serious sequelae in their brains, children who'd been left blind, measles used to blind people, children who'd been, and, and, and of course the other piece was to reassure everyone that the vaccine was safe and you know with the vaccines that we've been using for as long as we've been using measles and then MMR vaccine we have really good data now on how safe those vaccines are and I mean it's clear enough that for your individual child the risk of the disease even now is much higher than the risk of the vaccine but then there is also that question of um, your one-year-old, your, your, your infant who's less than one, who is really vulnerable, but is too young to be vaccinated. So this is a disease because it's so catching, 
where you want to be sure when you take your baby someplace into the doctor's office, um, to someplace where there are a lot of children, you wanna look around you and say, it's okay that my baby is here because all of the children over one will be vaccinated. Right, no, I had a case of this um, with a baby that went to England. Um, and I don't know if you wanna go a little bit into the history of, of why we've been having more measles outbreaks. And we had to get the Department of Health um, go through every single patient in the waiting room because the six month old baby and his mother had measles. Well, we don't want the complex spots not that long ago. Right, right. But we don't want to do that in our offices. We want to be able to tell our patients that, you know, you can sit here in my waiting room and feel okay because I've got everybody protected as far as I possibly can. And that's, you know, that's a, a terrible feeling. Right. So, right. So why are we here? And the answer is simply anti-vaxxers have spread misinformation, they have spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and they've made some people believe that the vaccine is riskier than the disease, which for measles is completely not a question factually. Now, if you forward that to COVID, that's a different story because we don't have any data on children. And children are not going to get the vaccine until we do. The right. children, the trials have now enrolled, not all the way down to young children, but we're going to have data soon. Um, so the truth is we're going to have data soon on younger children because the trials have been enrolled, but we're also going to have even sooner than that, more follow-up data on the adults because these vaccines are being given over and over and over now to adults. So we're going to know a lot about vaccines, we already know a lot in terms of reactions and problems. And obviously nobody's going to think about giving these to children. I mean, we're still, we're not giving anything to people under, under 16 yet. Mm -hmm. First trials are going to look at younger teenagers and then it's going to slowly move lower. But as I say, every time you move a little lower, you're, you're going to have all the data of how that vaccine works and how it protects people from the older older groups. And, you know, again, I think that, you know, you need to, people need to feel there's transparency, mm -hmm. to feel that the data are being released and read and looked at carefully. But I think that, you know, one of the things we sort of talked about when we wrote this piece for the New England Journal is children are a very important part of our herd. Children. Mm -hmm very important part of our future. We need to find ways to bring everybody across so that we can be there truly with our children and our grandchildren. It's so true. And I'm starting to see that we're having a pandemic of mental health problems in children. They need to be in school. They need to have activities. They need to be with friends. And I think that's going to be one motivation, I think, for people to, once we have some data, at least on the yes. older children. I mean, I think the good thing about COVID is that it seems to be, from what we know so far, which changes from minute to minute, spreading more in the older kids. And certainly, I would love to see the young adults vaccinated. They were doing a yes. sequentially dropping by all of these categories. From a spread perspective, I wish they would, you know, consider these young adults. I had a patient who said to me, well, I was on a party bus last week and I'm thinking you have COVID. <laughs> you took on a party yeah. bus. Uh, you know, so well, that's, that's what I'm seeing a lot all, of. I think we're all hoping that by fall, 
we'll be able to be, you know, protecting certain, I mean, certainly the adolescents, the college students, maybe the high school students. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, are you actually worried for any reason that a vaccine that is safe in 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds and has been studied and observed in them? It's not, I, I mean, I understand we need the research, but I think that that next group down is probably going to turn out to be biologically pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And they're biologically similar in terms of spread. You know, the high schoolers are spreading it. You know, the younger high schoolers, I, I think that it's really the littlest children that don't seem to be as much of super spreaders. And often they're the best with the masking. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> distancing. They're so good. So the other thing that comes up is, is mandates. I've had a lot of parents who tell me my kid is going to be forced to take the COVID vaccine. This was, by the way, before there even was a COVID vaccine they were coming in and saying this. And again, it still boils down to the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the anti-vaccine movement is spreading. Most people are not anti-vaxxers. They will always tell me I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but because most people are not, but so many other people are scared, uncertain, in doubt. Of course they are. So I remember years and years ago when I had just started in pediatric practice, talking to uh, a mom and she was, you know, a loving, caring parent as pretty much everybody is. And she was worried about vaccines because as so often happens, she had the family member who was the extremist who had managed to terrify her. And I said what I meant, which is, you know, I really hate to do this but you're gonna force me to describe the diseases. And I didn't go into this business to, to tell parents terrible stories of, you know, what is whooping cough like and what is diphtheria like, but if you make me, I'll do it. Because you've been hearing these terrible stories about really, really, really unlikely and in some cases just not true vaccine reactions. Let me tell you, what whooping cough is like, and I actually have had whooping cough, so I speak with authority here. Yeah, I, I saw that. You know, um, and the mother said to me, and she was in tears, but if I agree to let you give the shots, then it's like it's my responsibility. Right, and, right. This, there's a cognitive so, bias that if I do something and something happens, it's my fault. But if I don't do something and something happens and not, and it goes back to what we were saying before about before parents were raising kids and they didn't feel it was their responsibility. But now we do. I've had a mother and it's a different mother mm -hmm. where I had to diagnose whooping cough, pertussis in a son she had, and she had specifically decided not to have that vaccine. And when the test came back positive, and it was, it, it's another miserable, awful illness. And this was not a child who was, you know, deathly ill, but he had the worst cough of his life for, and it let, stayed for months and she was never sure whether it had triggered asthma and other, I mean, she didn't stop beating herself up for right. years. That no, it's a cognitive bias. It's not a true thing. It's just the way people fool themselves, right? Yeah. It's what I call a I thinking trap. 
It is, but I, I tell you, most of us go into pediatrics. We like parents. We like kids. We don't want to be the one telling you the terrible story about yeah. We're well, too nice. We're too nice. Let me tell you about Roald Dahl's daughter who right. will never get to do that. Father, and then she was dead. That's not right. We have to find ways to talk about it that recognize people's concern, recognize people's fears, but that we can keep talking. For example, about this, you know, this stupid story about MMR and autism, which has been investigated and reinvestigated right. re to the point where people who care about autism now are furious that they can't get money for other important. Oh God, yes, it's terrible. As a parent of a child on the spectrum, it's so painful to watch. Well, because we keep showing over and over again that it's not the MMR, but there are so many other questions that the families of children with autism want answered. Right, and I think there's also a natural desire for something to blame, but that's gonna happen all over again with the COVID vaccine, it's happening right in front of us. Somebody gets the COVID yep. vaccine, they dies after, and the family blames the vaccine. Right, just because something happens after doesn't mean it's caused by it. So I think the bottom line is, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I think it's just the beginning of many, many conversations because I think we have to be honest. I think we have to be transparent. I think we have to listen to people. I think, for example, it may not be because we keep saying, oh, well, you know, diphtheria was so terrible and whooping cough was so terrible. Well, if people's experience of COVID and their children overall is not so terrible, and, and I would hope that it would be, right? I don't want it to be bad. Then we're going to have to have different conversations. It may be more grandma. We don't want him to give it to grandma. We want to be able to hug grandma, right? Yep. It ha may have to be very personal because I don't know that we're going to be able to say, hey, we're going to protect those immunosuppressed people that aren't in your family out there. And we're going to give your child a vaccine and you don't know the exact long-term risks of the vaccine yet, right? Well which vaccines are you thinking about that have very long-term risks? Well, we don't have ones that we know have long-term risks. So it's theoretical, but my point is that we can't tell the parents, look at the long-term data if there isn't any. They're going to have to make a decision, just like we've made all the other decisions about COVID. COVID, again, I always say the only thing we know for sure about COVID is we know nothing for sure about COVID. So I think we have much better evidence that there, uh, and much um, building evidence that there can be lifelong effects of COVID infection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, than any parallel that I can think of in the world of vaccines. And so I, you know, part of the problem, as you know, that um, we always get into with the worry about vaccines is people come to you and say, can you absolutely guarantee me that my child won't have any kind of reaction? And when in medicine do we ever actually guarantee you every anything? Do we Nothing. You know, but we, so what we're saying is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the vaccines are safe. We have, you know, enormous amounts of data now to look at around some of the specific questions like MMR and autism. They're not related. They're not, you know, and- You can say and, that over and over. <laughs> you can keep saying it. 
But, you know, it still boils down to a risk-benefit decision. We have to respect that people are going to make the risk-benefit decision back to the shared decision-making. That was the term I was trying to come up before. Shared decision-making. This is the way we're doing things. We're going to be making shared decision-making, but I hope that we can build trust by being honest, by being transparent, by not trying to push our agenda on someone else, by not saying to someone, your child is going to get this vaccine and they're going to take on a risk for someone else. That's not the way it's going to be. We're going to have data and we're going to be sharing that information and we're going to be open, transparent and honest about it. It's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of trust building which is a whole separate conversation. But I want to thank you so much because we could talk all day and never be done. So I want to thank you. This is an amazing opportunity. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's wonderful to get to talk to you. And thank you for your very kind words about my book, about my writing. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Everybody should read that book, A Good Time to Be Born. It's really good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.